Everyone, remain calm. Welcome to the 77th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In this episode, we've got some brand new news to cover, and we've got a great interview with Mike Mattesino, the editor, producer, and remaster of the brand new John Williams Jurassic Park collection. We talked all about the creation of the CD collection and, of course, the greatness of John Williams. It's a great interview, so don't miss it. This week, you can hear me on two other podcasts, Grim Grinning Hosts and I Know Dino, the Big Dinosaur Podcast. Grim Grinning Hosts is a brand new podcast featuring discussion on all things theme parks. We talked about Jurassic World, the exhibition, Nintendo at Universal, Disney Annual Passes, and Islands of Adventure, Superhero Island. Their show is a bit explicit, so just a little warning in advance. I also recorded with I Know Dino about dinosaur and Jurassic theme gift ideas for the holidays. And we also talked about Jurassic World, the exhibition. We recorded a crossover episode, so you'll hear them here in a few weeks. I'll put the links to those episodes in our show notes this week, so definitely go subscribe and give them a listen. They're both really great shows. And don't forget that there will be a fan meetup at the Franklin Institute for Jurassic World, the exhibition, on January 7th, 2017, at noon. Myself, along with a bunch of other contributors from the podcast and other awesome members from the Jurassic fan community, will be meeting up at the exhibition in Philadelphia. Pick up your tickets for the noon time slot on January 7th, and we'll tour around the exhibition together. Also, don't miss out on our special promo code available to listeners of the podcast to use for Jurassic World the exhibition. Head to fi.edu or call the museum at 215 215- 448-1200 to purchase tickets and use the code J-W-G-E-N-E-R to get $5 off daytime adult admission tickets to Jurassic World The Exhibition. Now this is limit to four tickets per person. It includes general admission to the Franklin Institute and it cannot be combined with any other offer or discount. Upgrades are available on site for IMAX and the 3D Theater. Redeemable online, over the phone, or at the ticketing desk. Processing fees apply when ordering tickets in advance excludes holidays and it's valid through 41917 again the promo code is jwgener use it and let us know when you do so enough about all that let's get this episode started off with a bit of jurassic news from around the world 18 minutes and your company catches up on 10 years of research access rate program access security these pictures were taken in hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Boy, my head being right all the time. But today, I guarantee it. Timac Creations have been hyping up the release of Jurassic World Regenesis, and we've all been wondering just what they've been up to. 
Well, Jurassic World Regenesis has finally been released, and it's something that you won't want to miss. Timothy Glover and Jack Ewins, the minds behind Timac Creations, have built an interactive motion comic for best viewing on Google Chrome. Now, this fan creation brings us back to Isla Nublar after the events of the first film to help bridge the gap between the destruction in 1993 and its resurgence in Jurassic World. This project has helped with artwork from Yaroslav Kosmina and 3D animations from Manuel Bejarano. Altogether, it makes for a really interactive way to tell this story. So far, two chapters have been released and many more to come. Head to the link in our show notes to start interacting and learn more about what happened on the island. Chronicle Collectibles have announced pre-order information for their brand new Jurassic World statue featuring Owen Grady and Blue. It's an awesome statue with incredible likenesses, and the pre-order will go live Friday, December 16th at 12 p.m. CST. It's a 1 9th scale statue at 11 inches by 8 inches by 8 inches, and it's 3 pounds. You'll be able to get this for $349.99 at pre-order price and $400 regular retail price after 30 days. This is one of the more affordable items and of course there's always the option for payment plans if you want to spread out that $349 payment. Head to the link in our show notes to pre-order this item on Friday, December 16th. So J.A. Bayona has been making the rounds lately, and of course, we continue to find him talking about Jurassic World. This time, he had some things to say about the use of animatronics. He said, Obviously, you don't have real dinosaurs. Sometimes you have people playing dinosaurs, but we love animatronics, and we're trying to do as much with them as possible. It's complicated, because the audience now is so used to seeing CGI that they're sometimes reluctant towards animatronics. But at the same time, I think animatronics bring soul and reality to it. We're trying to find the balance between between animatronics and CGI in order to cheat the audience so they don't know what they're seeing. So yet again, it sounds like he's coming from a great place and really wants to see the use of animatronics just as much as we want to see them. I'm glad to find out that he's trying to use that balance between what animatronics can do and how CGI can blend with them. We have heard Colin talk about animating these CG dinosaurs to act more like animatronic dinosaurs, so I'm sure that's how they'll help to close the gap between the two mediums in the future. Hopefully the studio has more faith in their ideas this time around and the animatronics will hit the screen in more than one scene. Time will tell. To read more about it, head to the link in our show notes. The guys over at JurassicOutpost.com have released the remnants of the 1993 canceled Jurassic Park cartoons first season on their website. You can go ahead and read through the first season outline and explore where the cartoon would have headed. It makes for a great read, so go check it out. At the same time, it definitely makes you sad that nothing like this had happened. Hopefully we'll get some news on an upcoming series in the near future. But for now, head to JurassicOutpost.com to read the full synopsis. Oh, there it is. There it is. The closest you will ever come to living dinosaurs. Jurassic World, the exhibition. Now open at the Franklin Institute. Based on one of the biggest blockbusters in cinema history. Don't miss this awe-inspiring event for the whole family. Only at the Franklin Institute. For tickets, visit fi.edu. And remember, if something chases you, run! Let's open up the doors to the Visitor Center, where I speak with Mike Mattesino about the recent John Williams Jurassic Park collection from La La Land Records.
So today in the Visitor Center, I'm joined by Mike Mattesino, who you'll come to know as the man who produced, edited, and remastered the Jurassic Park and the Lost World soundtracks for the recent La La Land Records John Williams release. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, and man, it's uh, really exciting to have you on here. And I, I know a ton of people are very excited about this release and what you have to offer with it. And uh, obviously, you know, John Williams is, is great and uh, these scores are great. So I'm sure we got a lot to talk about. Sure. Well, let's get to it. All right. Well, I'm going to start you off with a question. May not have anything to do with the scores, but it's, uh, it's a question I ask everybody that comes on here. Uh, so bear with me. If you're stuck in a kitchen with a velociraptor, you know, just like that scene in Jurassic Park. What would you do, and would you make it out alive? Oh, what would I do? Um, hmm, I don't know how much I, I, I could go on all day thinking answers to these kind of questions. <laughs> um, I don't know. I probably, um, uh, I, I really don't know. I mean, you ask everybody this question. I, I do, I really yeah, and, and so no, nobody ever knows. It, I probably wouldn't make it out alive. <laughs> um, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. It's, That's basically the conclusion I think everybody comes to. Is it's kind of a tough situation, and there's probably not not any getting out of it. Yeah, because uh, you know, I guess you have to be eight years old and limping, <laughs> and, um, and the, you know, and 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 have a have a smart older sister. Yeah. It's it's like it's the perfect, you know, combination of, of things comes together to get out of that situation. Not everybody can do it, but, uh, yeah. you know, there's there's always a little chance. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to Jurassic Park, why don't you tell us a little bit about your specific fandom when it comes to this movie? Well, um, oddly enough, I'm not you know a huge, huge fan of them. Okay. Um, I admire I admire the movies tremendously. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they are in my top favorites at all. Um, but, uh, I, I always enjoy them. Um, they're a lot of fun. They're, um, a mixture of science and adventure. Um, so, uh, you know, Michael Crichton really came up with just this terrific, uh, concept in which he was able to explore some of his themes that he always did in a lot of his work, mm -hmm. which is, yeah. you know, um, you know, can you really go up against nature and can you really control science and technology? Um, he keeps coming back to those themes and um, they're always relevant and always valid. So therefore, the concept is really compelling. And then on the first two movies, you've got them directed by Steven Spielberg. So they're interesting movies from just a filmmaking standpoint to study and especially in the context of where he was in his career at that time and what he did, you know, before and after those films. Um, but, uh, my experience with it was more about, um, the, how the breakthrough of the technology that made it possible to make Jurassic Park the way it was made, um, coming at that point in time. And I had to actually think back to the time when the movie opened in writing the liner notes about it and trying to bring things um into context you know mm -hmm. that uh, this was really sort of um real groundbreaking moment in digital technology for cinema as well you know not only for visual effects but for theater sound um and uh it was it really at the time the 
internet was just getting started on a, on a <laughs> wide range. I mean, we all remember 1994, I think, was the famous clip with Katie Couric saying, can you tell me what internet <laughs> is? So, I mean, it, it was a different era. People don't realize how fast everything has changed in the um, um, in the 23 years now since Jurassic Park opened. Yeah. It was a completely different world. And um, um, so I was trying to capture a little bit of that. I had the very profound sense at the time that we were crossing a threshold. Um, you know, and look how movie theaters have changed, how the way we watch movies have changed. Uh, you know, I mean, so that it was that profound sense of crossing a threshold that I tried to capture. That's what I think of when I think of Jurassic Park. Yeah, and you're right. It's it's just the combination of everything. And you have Steven Spielberg, John Williams, and that CGI aspect that's just coming into the fold. So much coming together to make these movies awesome. And, you know, if whether you like them or not, you can't really deny that it changed, like, the film industry. And, and it's full of great uh, people putting it together. Right. And, I mean, it was one of the first big summer blockbusters that actually – had um, international gross outseeded the gross in the U.S., hmm. which was astounding to the industry at the time. They, you know, didn't expect that, and it again it shifted the whole everything about marketing, about merchandising. I mean, it changed every area of the business. It had an impact. Yeah, you know, Steven Spielberg talks a lot right now about how the industry is changing and and where he sees like theaters going and in, in the near future. But he was at the forefront of that back all the way back then, changing things and making things new for everybody. Right. At the same time, you know, the he was not you don't think about that while you're trying to get a True. movie made. You're just <laughs> trying to think about how do I make the best movie um, and how do you use all of the you know colors on your palette um, and apply them to uh, telling a story. Uh, you don't say, well, I'm I got this project's going to change the world. It's like you really don't know that till it's done and it has to be sort of the perfect storm and come out at the perfect time and be marketed in, in the perfect way and sort of tap into the uh, psyche of people at a, in a certain way. And I mean he hit this moment in time where there was this uh, – for the fascination with dinosaurs was reasserting itself and um, you know, it, it just was a lightning in the bottle moment mm -hmm. in 1993. Yeah. You mentioned those liner notes that you put together, and it's uh, encased in this 56-page booklet. Uh, there's a ton of great in information in there, insight. Uh, how much time and effort did, did you put into researching that part of the project? Um, feels like quite a bit. I'm um, sure. I pick and choose um, what liner notes to write, and I'm now in the enviable position of um, Amblin asking me to write about all of the ones for Steven's pictures. Um, mm -hmm. you know, but if I feel I'm not right for it, um, which was the case on AI, um, you know, I can recommend that, but, um, you know, so I, I, so I took it on and, you know, I will start with, you know, it's been covered on behind the scenes documentaries and things like that. So you've got a starting place and then I always want to search for new things or things that aren't talked about as much. Um, and so I'll hit the library, I'll go to the academy, and I'll go through news clippings, I'll look at the trade announcements, you know, um, I'll look at basically everything that they've got, and try to just really capture the context of history, um, and maybe be able to incorporate things that don't get mentioned that often. Mm -hmm. Or, in this case, shift the emphasis 
um, away from what a, you know common thought is. You know, for example, the CGI, which groundbreaking as it was, most of the time in the first Jurassic Park, you're not looking at CGI dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> it's maybe six and a half minutes of CGI work, um, and it's and it's the uh, the mechanical dinosaurs that you're mostly looking at, which is just equally groundbreaking work. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there's all the other things that there are to look at, such as just the thematic things in the screenplay and. Um, and, and the other aspects we talked about, the sound and, you know, just the impact it made on the industry. So, I mean, I'll try to go find the context and find something new. Um, and I and but it, it's I find it challenging because what you end up with is a document full of completely unrelated facts that then <laughs> need to be organized. And um, and it, it takes a long time. And um, on this, I kept having to go get a change of environment on it in order to um have have the have it flow and have it um you know get my thoughts organized and get with the thing into shape so it's like i'd go to my local library or i'd go sit in a park or i'd go sit in a restaurant and then finally um it was starting to come into shape and i went and spent an afternoon at the burbank public library and i pulled down Crichton's books and uh, I was flipping through them for just to, you know, kind of get the brain cells going. And I spent all afternoon there. And then I went to a nice Italian restaurant in downtown Burbank that I like. And I went into the bar area and I was there all evening Um, and, uh, you know, had a really nice wine. And I'm like, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen here because <laughs> I'm right next door to the theater where I first saw Jurassic Park. Oh, wow. Although it's not the same theater. They <laughs> tore that down and built a new one right across the street. But And it's on San Fernando Boulevard, right at the place where the T-Rex goes on its rampage in, <laughs> in the end of the Lost World. And Perfect. so sure enough, I left there that evening with a draft I was happy with, or at least something where it was all flowing and making sense. Um, and then I can then basically, I was at the point where I can now edit and tweak and so but it, it was a while so that was going on mostly in august i believe or yeah um yeah i think mostly in august is when that was going on okay. and it's always a great satisfying experience um you know to come away and finally feel like your your piece is making sense and it's a nice break for me to switch from being in the studio working on audio to then um doing doing the writing Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you get bogged down with well, also staring at a, a screen, you know, all the time, and you know, having the headphones on or however you're doing it. It's just a lot of work. And th- this booklet here, it's full of so much information. So you really encapsulate, you know, the very inception of these movies and the stories from Crichton and how they get made. And it's it's really an awesome piece. So you know, if anybody's you know doubting to buy this. Pick it up for this alone. That's uh, that's a uh, well worth a read for it for the uh, what fifty six fifty nine dollars it is. Um, yeah, yeah. So so that's it's a that's definitely a premium item, and people sure. who enjoy this, they you know they might not want to admit that they actually have an expensive hobby, but these <laughs> things are very very costly to produce, and the oh, profit sure. margin is so low. So. Um, um, you know, so a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of love and care goes into it. And I always feel that, uh, you know, we need to get it right. Um, and, you know, and admit it, you're, you're doing one of, one of, um, you're doing the, you know, the great composer, John Williams for Steven Spielberg movie. If you got to just put everything you can at it and make it as good as it can possibly be. And to an uh, appropriate for, 
the success that that entire series has enjoyed and continues to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, we had we had to get it right, and um, uh, you know, and I knew that um, you know everything gets reviewed. On this one, he actually wanted to read it, and nice. Wow. Um, and I, it's because his company actually owns the copyright on this property and it's, uh, as you know, continuing. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, so I always worry a little bit about that and, and I, <laughs> I, I t- sometimes go into, I like to put the stuff in context with his work because you'll always find that some piece of, um, his personality or what's going on in his life gets applied into every movie he makes. Um, there's a personal stamp somewhere in there. Um, you know, so, um, so I put again to offer, um, a greater context than just what might be commonly thought. Oh, Jurassic park. Yeah. That's that movie they made in the nineties that, uh, brought us, uh, CG creatures. <laughs> well, no, it's a lot more than that. Um, yeah. and of course, because in between the first two pictures was Schindler's list, I had to address that, um, and you know, in not in the way that I would if we were putting out an album of Schindler's List, but I had to again to put it in context of the importance of that film and um, how the scheduling um, related to that. Um, and there's some fascinating stories about you know being in Poland while you know you're re- reviewing effects shots or having the score beam to you're having two-way satellite communications with ilm and and that kind of thing so um there's some fascinating production stories but i couldn't tell it without also you know getting into schindler's list a bit just to put it Mm -hmm. on context yeah you kind of have to get into the headspace because well that's a dark film and so is the lost world so it kind of makes sense uh, that timeline in in the uh, process right um, so you've worked on so many great titles from Back to the Future, Jaws, Star Trek, Star Wars, obviously Jurassic Park. Um, do you feel like you come away as like an expert of these movies once you're done uh, reviewing them or, or writing the liner notes like that? Um, I don't know. Well, I, I guess, I mean, yeah, in all modesty, I mean, you could – expert has such a sort of an arrogant connotation. <laughs> but um, I never feel – I always feel like I'm still a student mm-hmm. of these movies. I don't really like to use the word fan. Um, you know, you're really a student of something that you love. You're constantly learning from it and, 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 you know, gaining enrichment from something, um, that you, that you love and care about. So, um, I feel more like a sort of a kind of a, uh, keeper of the canon kind of thing that, you know, it's, um, um, that when we're all gone, there's a place to go to get the context and to, and to get the music, of course, itself. Um, and when I work on the music, you know, I always come at it with the attitude that this might be the one time to, that somebody gets to work on this. So my job is to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that it, that it exists, and for a hundred years from now, when we're all gone, there's a place to go to hear all of Jurassic Park and read all about Jurassic Park and get that context, um, is, you know, of the of the history and the moment in time in which it appeared, because um, you know, how else will will people know about it other than doing what I had to do, which is hours and hours in the library researching it. Now I can, you know, kind of distill it to um, to a booklet and. 
a um, good friend of mine who runs the USC Cinema Television Library um, has often said that students will come in to research something and over the years, particularly in the last in 10, 15 years, um, will direct them to these soundtrack releases because we do this work of actually um, going behind the scenes and getting the production stories sort of distilled. But, um, you know, so that's great. But actually, in specifically with Jurassic Park, I didn't think that you could um, talk about the music unless you really knew, um, you know, what how the project itself came together and how that genre and how dinosaurs on film were um, depicted in the decades prior mm-hmm. um, and tap into sort of the fascination that people have had with dinosaurs since the mid 19th century when they started unearthing the bones and creating the museums and all that. So, um, you know, again, it's all about context. So if you needed to have some kind of basic knowledge of all that and that history had to be included and this sort of ramp up for Jurassic Park's production to become what it did in that that real, you know, important moment where they made the decision we're going to do CG dinosaurs and get away with it. You know, without that context, you can't really appreciate what John Williams then um, did with the music because if you applied that music to you know, half baked visual effects um, that you would have done, say, in the 1970s, it never would have worked. No. It had to go hand in hand with the quality, um, you know, that um, was brought to it. And that is, um, you know, just as important as what Steven and George Lucas did when they made Raiders. Um, and when George made the original Star Wars, he took these things that were. B movie material made them into A movies, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know. So, so again, it's all it's all about the context. You need to know where you came from in order to, you know, really assess where you are and then where you're going. Well, tell me a little bit about the uh, inception of this specific project with the the La La Land Records release. How did this come about for you? It actually came about um, from John Williams's office be, when they made the deal to do the live to picture concerts ah, mm-hmm. and I was told um, last year or late last year maybe a year ago or perhaps early this year um, 2016 that uh, we've just made the deal to do Jurassic Park in concert it's going to be debuting in London in November um, would La La Land like to uh, do that as a release and I said, well, of course they will. I said, the problem is there's not too much unreleased material from Jurassic Park mm-hmm. because in 2013 there was a digital download version that uh, added some additional tracks at the end of previously unreleased music. So I said, well, could we do it with The Lost World as a combination of the two scores um, since that has a ton of music that nobody's ever heard before? Yeah, and and they just floated that by uh, John, and then they checked with uh, Stephen if he'd be okay with it. He said yes, um, because he directed both pictures and both had John Williams scores. Um, that was going to work, um, so they approved it. And so then um, uh, it was a matter of going to both Universal Studios for their part of it and to Universal Music Group, separate company uh, in New York, for the license. And they okayed it. 
and then we were we were off and running. And so the goal was always to come out at the end of this year, timed with um, the um, premiere of the live to picture concert, which happened uh, in London um, in early November. Yeah, so I guess uh, you do get to communicate slightly with John Williams and Stephen about this because they have to have their input about how this shows up, right? I know, isn't John pretty particular about how uh, the track listing shows up and the way it's um, put out on an album? Well, you mean when he initially creates a soundtrack yes, album? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Abso- absolutely. Yeah. Um, and he's very old school in that way. And in his mind, he probably still thinks of LPs and records. And that's the background he comes from um, with regard to albums. Um, so he's thinking of, um, you know, what makes the best listening experience? What's a representation of the score mm-hmm. uh, that's sort of suitable for the masses? Um, and, uh, and he's a very, very humble man. Um, and, you know, can't imagine that every note he puts on paper, you know, is a work of genius, you know? Um, so he just goes for, um, you know, what he thinks works in, in consultation with the, um, his music editor, um, and, and, and all that. And of course, Nowadays, we are customarily, if it's a long score, we'll, we'll customarily get 65 or 70 minutes of music, you know, which is generous. But mm-hmm. um, he is the greatest composer in film music history. Yeah. So um, and has had, you know, so many successes and so therefore has a great following. And so on the big, huge hits like Jurassic Park, people want everything because the music instantly just creates a memory. And there are a generation of people for whom Jurassic Park was their Star Wars. For me, I kind of always scratch my head at that a little bit (laughs) because I'm like, okay, by that time, you know, we'd already gotten Jaws and Star Wars and Superman and Raiders and E.T., you know, um, and, uh, and when you when I hear people say, "Oh, Jurassic Park introduced me to film music and 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 you know and the greatness of John Williams," and I'm thinking, "Well, yeah, this was just kind of um, it is great, but um, he, you know his his methodology was well established by then, and, yeah. uh, you know, and and I'm like, but you have to res- respect that, and it's like you understand people that of a younger generation." you know, that was the groundbreaking moment. Yeah. Um, and you have to honor that and, 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 you know, and, and capture that. And I think he did it again years later with the first Harry Potter. Oh, definitely. There's, there's younger people who, for whom that was like, they, they opened up their minds to what films, film music could do. So, but for those of us who were around when the first star Wars opened, <laughs> you know, that I don't know how anything could possibly ever equal that, but, um, yeah. you know, but we do have, um, you know, these uh, sort of um, benchmarks that do come along and, you know, um, change the landscape in Jurassic Park, certainly one of them. Yeah, I think it really depends on when you when you view something for the first time. For me, obviously, Star Wars is Star Wars. It's amazing and and perfect. And it it was Star Wars for a long time, obviously. But I I uh, at that point, when I see Jurassic Park, I'm seven years old. So it's really the first instance of a movie where I can kind of take it all in and appreciate things a little bit more. Obviously, Star Wars was huge before my time, but and I, I, I appreciated those movies, but not in the same way like I couldn't uh, get into the music as much or do any of that stuff at that time. 
But once Jurassic Park came around, then it's a whole new story. And then I'm like getting into the toys and everything. So I think it's it's all about when you experience these things. And, and like you said, Harry Potter does the same thing for, for younger people today. Right. Um, so I guess you kind of summed it up in that one point that the reason we don't see a lot of these um, tracks and stuff, the unreleased stuff on prior material is is because maybe john isn't fully comfortable with his uh, with the stuff that he always creates like every single note you said um is that reason why or is there anything else is it just because of that or the the ability to make a good listening process well again he comes from background where from a time restricted era where you had an lp that was maybe if you pushed it 45 minutes um, and you had to figure out where do I break side A and switch to side B. Mm, yeah. It blows my mind that you know we're we're back to vinyl again. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah. So I mean, he comes from that background, um, and where it's like okay to repeat a track to complete the listening experience. Well, <laughs> once we got into CDs and you could start programming, you know, the order yourself, yeah, even to even to repeat stuff, it felt a little weird to have the same track on a disc twice. Um, but, um, you know, that's a, it's a secondary um, component to him. John lives in the world of his pencil and his scoring paper mm-hmm. and then switches from the pencil to the baton. And how are them? And, you know, has he done a good job and are the musicians performing it well? Um that's the world where he lives in. Everything else he trusts to other people to do their job. Um, so he'll, you know, he'll have a hand in creating the initial album, obviously, but he'll, what will be in his mind are, you know, the cues he particularly remembers of being happy with, that the orchestra performed well, um, that the scene um, is a memorable scene from the picture, and um, and, and work that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um those of us who then have the particular antenna that tunes into the music when we watch a movie, um, if it's a major thing like a Star Wars movie, you, you know, a light starts going off when you're hearing things that are not on the album and you want it. So, but that's a it's a different hemisphere of the brain, if you will, that kind of kicks in um, to you know to to sort of the desirability to have that. John is maybe too close to it to see it, um, and it's just um, focused on what he perceives as, you know, let's make something that's listenable um, and not necessarily include what we might call creeping around music. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, or, 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 or droning, and especially some scores that are not really um, melodically based, where it is a lot of droning. You know, you don't necessarily need or want every yeah. minute. But John tends to write scores where um, everything, you know, there, there's a um, there's a uh, um, sort of a, a faction of listeners and fans who just want to have the complete picture. Everything. They just want they just <laughs> they just want to know what he wrote, what he recorded, um, and and have it all if you know for historic purposes if for nothing else um because we obviously now live in a world where everybody can make their own playlists anyway and just because we put out a 110 minute score doesn't mean that an individual listener now can't go and make their own 
45 minute playlist of all of their favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we're in a world now where this idea of like sitting down and playing an album, you know, is is sort of this archaic thought. But, um, uh, you know, now we're into customizing your own listening experience. So um, it's uh, so all, all we can do is just like put everything out there. Um, and then let the people who love it um, do whatever they like with it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you leave something off, you know, then you're not doing your job. And so conversations do have to happen where I have to just sort of explain and make my pitch of um, why this needs to be out. Um, you know, for example, when I did AI artificial intelli- intelligence, I um, had to say in order to do this right, it's got to be three CDs. I said, because we have the original album and then this Academy promo was created that uh, John's people did not approve. Hmm. Um, And it got submitted and then spread around and then everybody had it. And I said, in order to make that obsolete and include everything on the original album, it has to be three discs. I know it's a tough sell, but look, this will, this will, you know, devalue that Academy promo copies of, still selling for a large amount on eBay, we can sort of devalue that and render it obsolete if we do a three disc set. And then they said, okay. So, um, there's a lot of administrative concerns and, and then the, the creative, um, side, you know, there are things that get questioned, but as we've done more of them, they've come to, to trust me to, uh, do it right. And that's what I feel like my job is. Yeah. So I think when the, when you get these two albums, you're like, all right, Jurassic Park. Awesome. This is great. But it's not the white whale of this, you know, uh, this collection. I think that's the lost world. There's what forty minutes of unreleased material for this. That's just crazy. Like, where has his music been all our lives? Just sitting on tapes at Universal Studios. <laughs> oh, that's heartbreaking. But like, I'm so glad we have it now because this material is amazing. And I, like I said, this is the stuff that people have been wanting forever because i believe that first album only had 14 tracks on it right and when you're right. when you're listening to these or watching these movies you're you're kind of you know picking up on these cues throughout the film and you're like oh i i, I don't have that on my album i don't have this one this one's missing too where is this stuff so now we we basically have i i guess everything right so it's it's really awesome to finally hear all this unreleased stuff it's all there, and I mean, and it's an astounding score, really unlike anything else he's ever done. Um, yeah. And the uh, and very very daring move to do a sequel to Jurassic Park and take such a, de- a departure into a different direction. Um, you know, so because uh, it's so easy, and you know, not really using the original score and the themes from it as a crutch. Mm-hmm. But really just, uh, you know, daring to be different. And, you know, so this package is clearly marked. You know, this score is obviously takes place on a, you know, on an island where you are going to be eaten and um, and chased. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's relentless and it's merciless, um, you know, and the orchestra just plays the hell out of it. So, um you know, it, it, it's quite revelatory and a, a ton of music on there that uh, didn't even get used. And mm-hmm. um, we already knew about some of sections of the film where John recorded one thing, but then in the editorial process, they replaced it with something else. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So now you actually get to hear his entire conception of the score as he originally um, intended it um, and recorded it. So it's 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 really an exhausting experience, <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, it, it's uh, it's just it's uh, it's so compelling to listen to just the quality of the recording and um, and just the um, the complexity of um, the writing. And just the overall approach with this sort of the percussion and the sort of the, the 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 jungle drums, mm-hmm. um, you know, which just sort of brings a whole um, connotation to it. Again, sort of a memory of movies and stories of the past, you know, um, just um, kind of come back when you listen to it, and you're just, you know, hearing you know the top composer just attack that genre, and um, and with this, these astounding results. It's just a, just a, a magnetic listening experience to me. Yeah, I think he really, really captures that adventure tone with the with the percussion and everything. And it is something that you don't hear very often from composers. So I think um, uh, just everything about this score, and I, for some reason, I don't know why, but people just write this movie off and the score itself even – but I, I just don't think they're diving into it the same way a lot of us are. So there's so much good stuff from this album, even the old one that we had, the 14 tracks or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's so much good stuff and iconic stuff, like the, uh, like the, the just that the main adventure you know theme for the Lost World. The way that captures that, it's just so iconic. I that's one of my favorite ones, probably across the board throughout both both of these films. It, honestly, um, it's more of the score that I would have wanted in the first Jurassic Park, <laughs> because I mean, in all honesty, uh, I, as a child, did not have the fascination with dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So the reverence for dinosaurs that comes out in Jurassic Park um, didn't really affect me. Okay, uh, yeah. especially having read the book first, where the, the it didn't feel like it had that tone. No, there was no. more tone. Was more a tone of fear about what had been done rather than reverence. Mm-hmm. Um, John captured the reverence in the, the iconic scene where the Brachiosaurus is first revered, re- revealed. Um, um, but, uh, you know, I, you know, was envisioning something darker even in, um, you know, just based on reading the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they went for a sort of a different tone in the movie, which was right for the movie. But um, it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and so when we got to this darker place with The Lost World, um, I really loved it. And I, I, I agree with you. The main theme, The Lost World, um, is just it's just in, ingenious. It's kind of um, – it's it, the basic structure is simple, but it's extremely complex um, the way that it's then arranged and where it goes and very difficult for the musicians to even play um, with some of these odd rhythms and, and beats and syncopations and things like that. But um, I know that there was a um, thought about, you know, once again, opening the album with it this time around because it's not the first thing that you hear in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but because we had an alternative version of it, it made sense so that we didn't have two versions of it close together. But at the same time, it you really need to like put on this CD and be instantly told this is a completely different approach. This is not Jurassic Park. Um, yeah. You know, it's a different island. And again, as I said, it, it immediately tells you, yes, there's adventure here, but, 
you know, um, it's much more dangerous um, and you're in much, much less control. And as yeah. the dial the film says, no fences this time. <laughs> you know, so right out of the gate, the music tells you that. And I think um, that's best achieved by opening the album with that track. Yeah, if you had started with the island's voice, it would have been a much, you know, slower, softer introduction. You wouldn't have gotten that, you know, you wouldn't have hyped it up as much if you had started that way. Right. You're not clear where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is good with the movie. Just, right. Mm-hmm. I right. do I do really love that alternate take uh, of the, the Lost World theme. It, just something about the, 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 you know, pounding in the beginning of that. Just I, I really love the alternate version of that. Yeah, that aggressive uh, um, brass starting right yes, out the that, gate. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah, as of the, the original version is what I call the, the, it. Sounds like the I call it the Lawrence of Arabia beginning. <laughs> sounds like that. So. Yeah, there's there's so many good aspects of this this new album here, and I, I like one of the aspects I do like is that you do split up a lot of these tracks that were kind of all synced together at one point, like um, the incident at Isla Nublar. So when you have that on the original one. It's like it goes from like scene to scene to scene. So it's that is it is actually kind of confusing as you're listening to it on the original score. So I like that stuff like that is broken up and even the the tranquilizer dart, I believe, like I like that these all have their own endings now and they're kind of a complete uh track in themselves. Well, I try to um, you know, you, you have to think of there's a lot of factors that go into something like that. Um you know, on the on the on the end, you know, the sort of the end user part of it is that you want to give people flexibility to put together their own playlist and how they'd like it. Mm-hmm. On the front end of it is the um, creative approach, and I will tell you that uh, on Jurassic Park, you know, I was asked, "Can we keep that album track incident at Isla Nublar?" Um, as it was on the album to mm. give it a good bang opening, which of course segued into the falling car. Yeah. And, um, because it felt that, um, you know, um, that track, the falling car on its own, um, didn't work as a standalone track, which I originally had it where, where it is, um, you know, where, where in, in sequence. Mm-hmm. So, and I said, well, you know, if you insist, I said, but I had, I ha- yeah, again, and I have to go to, <laughs> I got to, you know, go toe to toe with John's people <laughs> on this and say, well, but, you know, we really will be taken to the mat for that if we do that. And then the rest of the score is chronological. Yeah. Uh, I do musically and in terms of listening experience, see your point. Um, but it's the kind of thing that's antithetical to what we're trying to do here. So, the response was, okay, well, then would you be able to put the falling car together in the same track with the T-Rex chase? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, okay, that will work. So that's that's the compromise. So now at least we kept the chronology, but the falling car has something else within its track that it goes onto, and there are consecutive cues in the film and consecutive scenes in the film, consecutive, you know, so, um, you know, so it's that all worked together. Um but then, you know, you get into the situation that I might not have been able to do that had it not been for the 2013 Geffen download release, which was the first time that the T-Rex chase was um, made available, mm-hmm. um, albeit without the uh, ending of the queue. 
So yeah. And then you get into this administrative thing where you have um, who owns what. So all of the content of the original album, which was on MCA Records, is controlled by Universal Music Group, and um, which is not part of the same company as Universal Studios is. So Universal Studios would own all the masters and retain the rights to the unreleased music but they don't have the rights to put them out themselves because the record company universal music group has what we call the phono rights. So, um, if you, you run into a problem, if you try to combine a previously released track with a previously unreleased track within the same new track, (laughs) so then there's, there's an administrative issue. Yeah. So um, what ended up happening is that I was um, there was the assembly actually changed because, um, for example, I had the track um, "Hatching Baby Raptor" then go into the next cue, which was "You Bred Raptors," which had never been released until now. And um, Universal Music Group said, "If you do that, then Universal Studios has to assign the mechanical rights." to Universal Music Group for that queue. Hmm. So in order to um, avoid that and to allow NBC Universal to um, uh, keep those mechanical rights, I separated those. So it, so administrative stuff comes into it. So um, I was only able to combine the falling car with the T-Rex chase as one track because the T-Rex chase had been released three years ago um, by Geffen. Hmm. You know, um, and so the whole thing was already with Universal Music Group anyway. Yeah. We were just constituted, constituting a new version of it, which you call a derivative work. But it was a derivative work of things they already had the rights to. So all these crazy you know, administrative things crop up, and it's and it's very very difficult. It's much more complex than people realize of yeah, what really. it takes to actually put the reassemble these scores in order. Um, uh, you, you know, and when you're dealing with something being owned by more than one entity. So in the lost world, we have the track rescuing Sarah, which was truncated by about a minute on the original album. And so in order to create this, what we, first of all, we have to retitle it. So we have to call it extended version <laughs> um, because so that it doesn't get confused with the track already in the system with the same title. Mm-hmm. And then that extra minute, because it's in the middle of a previously released track, NBC Universal had to concede the mechanical rights over to Universal Music Group, so they now own it and have have the ability to release it. Ah. So it's it's yeah, it's extremely complicated. So much administrative, you know, things go on. It's not just a matter of okay, I, I get the uh, music, assemble it, and and it's done. There's all all of this administration and um, calculating minutes and seconds um, and use released music versus unreleased music of timing how many measures uh, the choir is singing. Um, You know, I mean, it's it's, there's a lot of administration that goes into making this work. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, that's the stuff you don't think about. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, very complex with the. with these, um, you know, with the fact that it's, 
La La Land is licensing from two entities. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and that's necessary. And that's what's made these labels work is that only a third party can really come in and do this because um, the, the license holders don't really license to each other. So um, a third party can come in and say, okay, well, I'll take this material from you, this material from you, and now I have a license for all of it, and we can assemble it and put the composer's original score back together, you know, in chronological order. Mm -hmm. But it's not a simple process administratively at all. Yeah, I'm I'm sure I can't believe that. That's so much work you got to do and a lot of chess pieces to move around to make sure you, you know, assemble this in in a great order. And whether it's a 40 second track or, you know, 5 minutes, it's so great that we finally have this Lost World stuff. Like I was just like I was I was shocked to see this release come about and and the fact that we're getting it because it's kind of something I've always wanted and uh, a lot of people have been saying the exact same thing. Have you have you played it um in your car? Oh, of course, yeah. It's great. <laughs> drive to yes yes that's one of the things like the uh, with this whole adventure tone and everything that's one of the things that you could put it on and like, say you're taking a hike or you're driving your car like it's the perfect soundtrack for that yeah <laughs> so newly released tracks aside what makes this album different from the previous releases i guess through the remastering process well um jurassic park um the uh, half-inch stereo masters of the scoring masters were transferred actually in 2013 for um, the Geffen download release at, at high, very high resolution. And uh, Ramiro Belgar, who's John's music editor, um, recreated the original album from that and then took a selection of cues that were not on the original album and combined them together for a, a few bonus tracks at the end of previously unreleased material. Mm-hmm. So I actually was just given that Ramiro's sessions. So nothing new had to be transferred. It had just been done in 2013 and all of the editing had been done already. Um, I did go and um, check it out and um, put it up against the original album and against the sound from the picture itself. Um, and did slide a few things here and there so that I could get it 100% accurate. But most of the time, you know, it, it was fine. Um, there were also instances in 2013 where he grabbed a um, piece of a different take in order to cover up a stage noise or something like that, even though the version with the noise was used on the original album and in the film. Um but he's a music editor and I come from more of the background of restoration and, you know, and, and told him that, well, you know, there's more ways to deal with noise than just choosing another take. So as we actually go in and take out the noise. Um, and so I did that with maybe one or two exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, ju- I just kind of used the work that he had done um, as a basis um, for this new assembly and then pay pretty close attention to what uh, Patricia Sullivan, who did the mastering on it, um, did in 2013 and kind of stayed in that ballpark for Jurassic Park. So, um, you know, that was pretty easy. It was great to work with the high-resolution material of it and to hear um, all the original sessions and the chit-chat and all the alternate takes. And, you know, and I thought I would search through everything for maybe other tracks that we didn't know about, alternate versions 
Um, but uh, but there weren't any um, for whatever reason. I, either that you know everybody was focused on getting on to the next project. Um, um, you know, Stephen was onto Schindler's List, and he obviously was very focused on that. Yeah. Or that they just, or that they just uh, nailed it. They just nailed it, <laughs> and, the, and didn't have the usual situation where we have two or three alternates or versions of cues that are completely different from the final versions. They just nailed it, and any decisions they made to make a change were just done editorially, such as um, tracking in the sort of island adventure theme when the T Rex makes his, um, um, you know. Uh, Twinkle Toes T-Rex, you know, comes in at the, at the end of the picture. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, so um, they did that editorially um, rather than going back and recording inserts or replacement cues or whatever on both scores. They didn't mm-hmm. do that. You know, they just moved on to the next uh, projects. So um, but anyway, so, uh, so on Jurassic Park, I had that as the starting point, which was uh, great for La La Land as well because they didn't have to pay for the transfers. Um However, I will tell you a little bit of an aside here in that, um, you know, I've also started to get involved in some of the live to picture concerts mm-hmm. that are on. And on Jurassic Park, I said, um, do you want me to check the multi-tracks to see if I can get you just the synthesizers for Dennis Steele's The Embryo? <laughs> So that the orchestra can play the acoustic stuff and the synth can be just, you know, embedded. Yeah. And they said, well, it's a thought. We actually were considering revoicing it for orchestra. Uh-huh. Um, and they said, but we also don't – we're not planning on bringing a choir in for this because they really don't have that much to do. Um, the, you know, a little yeah. bit at the beginning Standing and then the, around. <laughs> right, and then the very end. I mean, it's a long stretch. It's not like on home alone, which is great. Cause they come in just for the second half. Um, so, uh, um, I said, well, I could check that out. And they said, the other thing is the shakuhachi flute, which is in just two cues. Um, you know, it would save us some money if we kind of if had that. Can you check that out? So I said, okay, now I didn't need the multi-track for the project, but it all exists there at Universal. So they had they had it called in, and we isolated the reels that I needed to check out. And um, they said, these tapes are shedding. Oh. So, no. which happened with analog tape, but, you know, yeah. it's, un, you know, it was a shock, you know, that the multi-tracks from 1993... We're succumbing to this. So um, they said, we need to bake the reels. So they baked the reels. They played fine. And um, the choir, unfortunately, was too much married to the orchestra. They were not oh. discreet. So they ended up with a synth choir for the concerts. But the shakuhachi flute was pretty clean. So I was able to extract that. And it's for Dennis Steele's The Embryo and I think just the opening titles. Um, huh. And... Um, so they so I actually gave them just those clean things and they sampled them and created a sort of programmable synth. So at that moment, while it's being performed in concert, when uh, the music comes up to that point, somebody just presses a button and the and the <laughs> actual shakuhachi flute from the original recording plays. So awesome. but but I had said, okay, you know, when when you order in elements, everything has to stay together. 
even if you know what you're looking for, I said, if I just need reel three, well, sorry, but if it's a 35 reel set, all 35 rolls have to be moved. Everybody stays together. So I said, well, since these are here, and since you've told me that these are shedding, um, do you think that maybe it might be a good idea to actually transfer everything and save this? So I, they had some internal conversations and came back to me saying, yes, we have talked and internally and have found the, uh, the, the budget to go ahead and, and do this. So because of that okay. search for something from the concert, um, something that we needed for the concert, um, they were able to just transfer all of the multi-track on Jurassic Park and, um, and did digitize all of it. Wow. So, um, you know, so again, that's just, uh, that's just, you know, my rude awakening, you know, to that whole thing goes back to the time when Jurassic Park was first made, when I first started getting into all this and found out this phenomenon that stuff just will go away. If you uh, if you don't maintain it or transfer, it, back it up or take care of it, it just goes away. It doesn't matter how important it is or how successful it was. It's you know, um, it's organic material and it will degrade. Yeah. So because of the concert, we found that out about the <laughs> Park multi-track, um, and it, and it all got saved because you know I know they did a 3D conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if they tweaked the soundtrack for that at all but let's just say somebody comes along in seven eight years and says hey let's do a new atmos mix of jurassic park let's call in the multi-track so we can do multi-channel music and whatever and oops it's gone yeah oh wow you know so i mean this is why (laughs) it has to be taken care of and on the lost world the same thing was true of the half inch stereo scoring masters they were going they were they were wobbly they were dropping out they were not playing can you believe it? From 1997. So, wow, really? Yeah. So they have one inch. They had a one inch Masters, which had Sean Murphy's um, 5.1 mixes on it and then stereo on it as well. So I ended up using that as the source. And um, it's an amazing recording. It really uh, is. <laughs> and I, I think that they kind of went conservative um, in the 90s for doing the initial CDs because that's where we were at the time. We were barely a decade into having CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so nobody really knew how far you could take digital technology. Nobody knew what kind of playback equipment would be coming up in the future or what listening environments people would be in. So um, there was a conservativeness to um the earlier era of digital music because people were still just kind of plugging them into their old stereos from the seventies. And, you know, if you went too far with something, you just blow them. So, yeah. um, But now I was able to kind of let the, uh, the full um, breadth of the original recording just, um, just come alive um, in in both cases. So, um, um, they're probably among um, Sean's um, finest recordings, and then um, and then I, what I have to do on the Lost World, I actually had to recreate uh, all of the performance edits. So I will listen to the original album, I will listen to the movie, I will have um, the printed scores. Sometimes the orchestrator will actually write the takes on it of where stuff changes. Um, and you have logs that will tell you the circle takes and that tells you where to start. But John tends to do a lot of intercutting, um, where you'll be, you know, 
take number 47 will be used for as the master, but there'll be intercuts where you'll have two measures from 45 and three measures from 48. And, you know, and sometimes it's to do with hitting the timing just right for what's mm -hmm. happening on the screen. And other times it's performances. Um, but I had to recreate all of that actually wow. from scratch. Wow. So, um, and, and I love doing that. It's a tremendous learning process of actually, you know, learning, okay, to figure out what are you listening for that makes this right, but not that take, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, and, and really the process that, uh, you know, the music editors go through to, um, to nail that. And, um, you know, and what is the conductor hearing? What is the orchestrator hearing? Um, you know, that leads to these decisions of how to assemble a queue. Um, you know, the digital technology is great because you can't tell, when the intercuts are happening um in the old days when you were just you know cutting mag and splicing you know some of these um analog edits are just these sound like holes you can drive a truck through um <laughs> but uh you know so it's so, the, so it's always fun to work with the technology um and to just also learn just from the creative standpoint and study what they were doing and and um you know um the the fascination of the, of the whole process man that's incredible it, oh, it's so cool to hear all these you know behind the scenes stories and and to think about all those edit points and stuff that you had to deal with that's a lot of work just knowing like from editing the podcast itself i'm always doing stuff but that doesn't compare anything to this so i can imagine how hard it is and how much work you have to do to get that right you really just your head goes into a zone where you sort of <laughs> live in there and um you, know, you live in the you, know, you I'm, I'm literally feel like I'm living in the Sony scoring stage you know, <laughs> you, acoustically you're in that environment that's sometimes why I hate going from doing multiple projects at a time because mm -hmm. like once your head and your ears tune into the room of the score that you're working on you need to keep it there um, if you switch to something else something recorded later or decades earlier or you know um, your head has to go to a different place. Then you have to come oh, yeah. back. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be changed by, um, you know, uh, after lunch, when, when you've eaten, things sound different than they did in the morning. I mean, there's a lot of science to it. And, yeah, um, yeah. You know, but we're all, but we're human beings. And so it's like, uh, um, it, it, it's not a scientifically measurable um, process that we're doing. There's an aesthetic human component to it so um you know all these things get factored in but uh then there's also um cases where i have um music that's not in the film um and you know uh, i then have to but i might have multiple takes of it and have to figure out well how to present it so i then get to become sort of the, the music editor on it i will do things like listen to the chit chat between John and the orchestra that oh, usually nice. precedes or follows every take. Sometimes they'll, you will get a clue there and they'll say, could we just go back and, um, we need to get measure 20 better. So I'm like, aha, that's so I'll, so I'll <laughs> listen to measure 20 in that next take and see what they did. Um, and, uh, you know, so sometimes that illuminates things and then just, um, um, just listening very, very carefully to the performance for any, um, misplayed notes or any beats that are off or anything like that. 
and just listen more carefully than we usually do. Yeah. Uh, to you know, just see. Okay, well, what does the music say, and um, and and how are they playing, and if we need to do any intercutting, you know, how will I do that to uh, create a, to create the best performance? So that's fun stuff when that stuff comes along. I mean, I was really surprised to find uh, how much Lost World material wasn't used in the movie. Maybe good, uh, I don't know, ten or fifteen minutes. Hmm. Um, the whole sequence where they got the baby T Rex in the trailer, um, you know, was scored all the way through um or when um they're up in the the high hide and you just see the trees moving you know of yeah. the t-rex don't see it just the trees move <laughs> um that was all scored so i mean to line that up to picture is always fun oh i love doing that yeah, yeah that's that's always fun to see how the cues work in hand hand in hand with the film and in fact um for any listeners who um subscribe to film score monthly online um, we've prepared to score restores for the December issue, which should be announced, I don't know, in the next week or so, of uh, Jurassic Park, um, the Q's uh, Goat Bait, and um, uh, The Saboteur, which, by the way, was not the original um, title of that unused Q. The original title was The Menace Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, uh, and go, Goat Bait, Goat bait is interesting. Uh, it's the first Tyrannosaur paddock sequence um, uh, where the T-Rex does not show up. Yeah. And, uh, and John scored that entire scene. Um, and I had first put it up while I was working on it to just look at it and study it. And I realized, boy, was it right to take it out? For it sure. Does work, it does work with it. And you'll see. It totally works with it. Um, but that was shot exterior in Kauai. And the actual roadside attack in the rain was done at <laughs> Warner Brothers on you know on a soundstage. Later, recreating that little area, mm-hmm. um, which is of course the the sort of the centerpiece memorable moment about the the first movie. Mm-hmm. And just psychologically, the absence of music um, makes the nighttime scene even more realistic and terrifying. Um, you know, for for whatever reason, and this is, this is the kind of strange psychological impact that music or the absence of music, um, you know, has um, um, on on the audience. It, most of it happens subconsciously, and I remembered very very vividly from opening day of the picture the moment that I also talked about in the notes where, when the T Rex road attack ends, you know, and we cut to um, Samuel Jackson talking about how Nedry hacked the computer systems or what he did, you know, um, and music starts there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember all of the gasps and the murmuring and the kind of nervous laughter in the audience. And I realized in studying the picture again, that it's like the music tells you it's okay to take a breath now. Yeah, really. Because uh, that was just a harrowing 10-minute sequence <laughs> that is not scored. And we'd never seen anything you know, like that. Um, so, uh, to then say it's, it's so good. It doesn't need music. Um, you know, just talks about that, that speaks to you know, what a great sequence it is. And then when it got to the lost world, I think they found the same thing again, that when they were in the trailer, the, uh, these mechanical T-Rex heads moving along the side, the imagery is so powerful that, um, 
it doesn't need the music. So they took it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kept it for when Sarah hits the pane of glass. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this, so this, so there's a great, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, I'm the beneficiary of a lot of kind of film music study as I work on these things. And it's, uh, and it's great fun. Yeah. You know, uh, like, like you just talked about, I think that is one of the essential things about these movies is, is the time it gives you to, uh, relax and, and just, 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 just to take in the sound of the scene. And uh, that's one of the things that always stands out to fans of this franchise. And I think, um, you know, with some films today, sometimes there's just either too much music, too many sound effects, you know, dialogue, all crammed in to one small scene. So the fact that these movies took the time to to have those gaps with no music, while the music is obviously amazing and, and some of the best, it, it's nice to have that that time where you can just hear the jungle sounds and and you know feel the terror kind of creep up on you right because music can't say anything unless it's absent Mm, yeah and um and i think i also you know um uh included the little um story in the liner notes about hitchcock and bernard herman and north by northwest oh yes (laughs) you know and about scoring the crop duster sequence you know, so I mean, which ended up not needing music. So it's it's and, and that's kind of like the Jurassic Park's equivalent moment, is that that centerpiece iconic thing that we think of, you know, in North by Northwest is that scene. Um, um, but you needed you needed to the audience to just have that sound of the airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you added music over to it, you are lessening the impact. Yeah. So, so uh, the same thing. I mean, and the sound design, of course, in Jurassic Park is still phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, as is the CG. I mean, it's that, that stands up still all these years later as among the most convincing CG, particularly the Lost World. Oh yeah. You know, it's highly underrated um, um, CG work there. It's it's really just is it's incredible. Um, in terms of feeling like the computer generated element is actually occupying physical space very hard thing to do um and i even when i look at a lot today that's what i always feel like i don't feel like the light is actually hitting the object in space mm-hmm. um um and 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 that's and um, you know or i never feel like daylight is really really daylight so but in the in the lost world they really um particularly nailed it when i looked at it again i'm like this is just unbelievably phenomenal work just it's it just there's a cohesion to the imagery that's uh, astounding but uh, but the sound design yeah and of course you know on the first jurassic park sean murphy who recorded the music was also one of the sound effects editors or or, or sound sound mixing team um and um got his oscar for being part of that team so they had the benefit of um the guy who recorded the score also working on the sound design so that one would not compete with the other, that they would have sort of a happy marriage, um, and, and just the right balance. And, um, John had also, you know, gone up to Skywalker ranch before he recorded the score to, um, listen to the sound design that they were doing and, um, make sure that he could write a score that would not compete with it that would just kind of uh, compliment it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you often composers have done this forever where, um, they'll look at the scene and realize that, uh, okay, a uh, high pitched wind is blowing. So I'll do something very low in the orchestra. 
you know, um, or, or a man with a deep voice is talking. And so you can do something in the higher end of the orchestra so that you don't compete, but that, uh, you know, the entire, everything in the sound field can kind of, um, come through. So, you know, there was a lot of technical care on, um, on the Jurassic park movies that, that really comes through. And, um, you know, that it, it's just a perfect, um, combination of all the different uh, branches of the artistry, the cinematography, the editing, the scoring, the sound design, you know, all of that just uh, came together so well. So, so moving on to that, how did you feel about uh, Michael Giacchino's work in Jurassic World? Do you think he blended well with the, the new and the old? Yeah, I mean, I liked how he used uh, John's themes at the appropriate moments. Um, and it's, it's a real uh, fun um, you know, it's, it's, it's a rather harrowing movie, but, but there's, <laughs> but the music is kind of fun and, um, you know, there's a little bit of tongue in cheekness to it. Um, but it's a rousing adventure score. So I, I thought he did, he, I thought he did good. He's a really great composer and a great guy. What do you, what's your take on at, you know, the scene later on in the film, um, blue, you know, gets, you know, pushed off to the side, but later comes back to save the day kind of, and, and runs back in slow motion and you get that little cue from the lost world. What, what do you think about that? Why is that kind of thrown in there at the last second? Um, you know, I don't know. We'd have to ask him. I don't know that anybody <laughs> has, um, yeah. but I think he just, uh, wanted to acknowledge, you know, um, where he, where he came from and where this came from. Um, you know, and early in his career, he did music for a Lost World video game. Yeah. Um, so uh, um, I think that just uh, shows the loyalty he has and the recognition of uh, the background and to just work in that little bit of uh, continuity. Yeah, I hope he comes back because he's a great composer. He's perfect for this. Obviously, he's a busy guy and yeah. uh, is working on, you know, he just finished up Star Wars. So I'm really, really excited to hear Rogue One's uh, score. Yeah, I have. I think some of it's been previewed, and uh, yeah. I have. I haven't listened to any of it at all. So, but uh, <laughs> I'll be seeing it Tuesday. Night. Yeah. Oh, nice. Wow. Early. I, I'm waiting till Thursday. <laughs> Tonight's the premiere, and um, yeah, and uh, all these street closures in Hollywood. It's insane. I don't. I actually don't know why they're doing it at the Pantages, but um, uh, but they are, which is not really set up as a movie theater. You. you <laughs> oh no. You, back in the day but it's 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 for broadway shows ah. so it's it's it, 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 so i i can't quite figure that out but anyway that's <laughs> what we're having the premiere you know that's awesome because I, yeah i saw that they got um an x-wing down there on the streets and and they've you know giant you know red carpets and everything so that's got to be an amazing thing i think it's streaming tonight so i'll probably watch it yeah it's yeah, cool um from what i've been hearing jurassic park 3 might be on the list for la la land records in the future is that something you'd look to work on um, I would love to work on it, um, but I actually have not heard it mentioned. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, but it's, it's certainly worth considering. Um, I don't know. Um, I have the album. I don't know. It's a very short movie. Yes. Yeah. It's only an hour and a half. I, I probably like better than most people um, because it get it, 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 it maybe because of it, because it's short. It's just in and out quickly. Yes. And, um, um, and it has some uh, interesting things in it. And as with The Lost World, it takes the opportunity to um, present some things from the Crichton's original novel. 
mm-hmm. that the first movie didn't. Um, so, uh, you know, um, I, I don't really have a problem with the film that a lot of people have. Um, but <laughs> as, as being only 83 minutes or something like that, um, I don't know how much more music there is to do for it. Yeah, and that's always uh, the point of contention, people comparing Don Davis's score to John Williams and how they, you know, interwork with each other. I think he did uh, a good job, sometimes relied maybe too much on John Williams' stuff, but there is some really, really good stuff in that score. Yeah, I like it as well. So uh, before I take up way too much of your time, uh, where can people uh, – or what, what can people look forward to uh, seeing from you in the future? Well, um, I haven't I, – I, I think I should just uh, – if, if I um, – Keep it simple. <laughs> now, if I didn't say it before, um, you know, soundtrack buyers do have an expensive hobby um, and uh, – I'm very, very grateful that they exist and that they support um, all these efforts. Um, I will, you know, just uh, advise John Williams fans to save some money um, <laughs> for particularly over the next year or so. Nice. Um, there are there are a lot of things happening, and um, I'm very fortunate in that I've done a lot that have um, been for um, Stephen and Amblin. Um, and that we are looking into others. And uh, so, but there's, there's a lot of really good things uh, coming up that I'm just thrilled to be working on. Awesome. Awesome. So where can everybody find you online? Um, well, gosh, um, I do have a website, um, Mike It's been grossly neglected. <laughs> there. Um, and um, recently I've kind of distanced myself a bit from social media um and it but uh it, there's just been things going on and i've just been really really busy but i'm but i'm, I'm but i'm accessible and, and reachable um so i would just say go to that website and um um you know, if you need to contact me i have an email address there awesome well thank you so much and hopefully you know maybe some of these other scores jurassic park 3 or jurassic world come you know down the pike sometime in the future and maybe we can uh, have you back to talk about it That'd be great. I do have to say that um, I do enjoy hearing from the collectors and from and from the fans, who again I prefer to think of as students, but um, <laughs> not mine, but students of the thing that they love, um, because that's the most satisfying part of it for me is not that I get to work on it; it's that it actually gets out there to people who care about it and love it and get to enjoy it, and I get to sort of um, share in that knowledge that it's out there we all have it and myself as a fan and a student um you know you know have it alongside them and that we're sort of all in this together um and you know that i'm very very happy to sort of be on the front lines uh, you know fighting to have have projects happen and, and have them done correctly and i'm very very grateful that i get to be the one um to work on them well yeah i think a, a big thank you from everybody in the fan community for basically any film franchise that you've worked on it's uh you know it's a big thank you from us because we really appreciate all the work and energy you put into this project so thank you very much for uh for this and for coming on the show okay thanks brad pleasure
Make sure to visit JurassicParkPodcast.com to find all our past episodes, brand new news articles, information on how to contact us, and much more. It's a great source for everything related to the podcast, and of course, Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. Head to JurassicParkPodcast.com and help us build a great community. Anybody hear that? Thanks for listening to the 77th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. A huge thanks to Mike Mattesino for joining me today on the podcast. If you couldn't tell, I was really excited about this collection release, so it's great to find out more info on how it was made. John Williams is a genius, and Mike really knows how to edit his works to hit our ears in the best way possible. Don't forget to listen to Grim Grinning Hosts and I Know Dino this week to hear me on their episodes. Both shows were a blast to record, and I cannot wait for you to hear them. Of course, don't forget about the promo code that we're running with the Franklin Institute for Jurassic World The Exhibition. Enter the code JWGENER for $5 off daytime adult admission tickets. Head to our website for a direct link click-through and for more information on the promo code. Don't forget to share that code with your friends and family, tell them where you got it, and let us know when you use it. If you want to interact with us, we do most of our work over on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Jurassic Park Podcast, and our Instagram handle is at Jurassic Park Podcast. You can listen to us via iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podomatic, YouTube, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So make sure to subscribe to automatically get new episodes every week. If you haven't already, please give us a five-star review on iTunes or a great review wherever you listen to the podcast. It will seriously help our rankings and make it easier for fans like you to find us. We're usually spotted commenting on the Jurassic Park subreddit as Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to check out JurassicParkPodcast.com for all the links you heard here today. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us with any news stories, MP3s, comments, or if you want to debut a segment of your own, send them to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. Or you can submit questions directly on our website contact form. If you'd like to record something for the show, send it in to us and we'll feature it in an upcoming episode. If you don't have any way to record, you can give our voicemail line a call and leave us a message. That number is 732 725-7763. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now.